Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. A very pleasant good evening to everyone. Welcome to That's Truth. I am Augustine Erskine at the console tonight once again, and Pastor Murphy is here as usual to answer your question and to share with you our topic for tonight and also answer your questions. So I do trust that you will join in the conversation tonight, be a part of the program, and I do trust that it will be a source of blessing and encouragement, enlightenment to you. We are going to continue on Bible prophecy where we've been doing a series for a a few weeks now and I do trust that you have been enjoying those topics. We are going to answer some questions first, some questions that we started last week. So Pastor Murphy, good evening. Good evening, uh, Brother Erskine, and good evening to those who might be listening this evening. Well, Pastor Murphy, let's get into this question from a listener last week. A listener wanted to um, to whether there were two Thomases in the Bible. Okay, I get that one. Oh. Yeah, I, I I want to respond very quickly and very hurriedly to that question. I'm not too sure um, what is the rationale behind the question, but I suspect it might have to do with the fact that the word Thomas uh, in the Bible means twin. Um, he is referred to in the Bible as uh, Didymus, and uh, the word Didymus is the um, Greek word for Thomas. Thomas is the Hebrew word equivalent, and Didymus is the, the Greek term. So we're not dealing with two individuals. We're dealing with one individual who has a, uh, a Hebrew name but also has a Greek name. It's just the same thing with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul's Hebrew name was Saul. Uh, but of course, after he was converted and after he became the leading uh, advocate and leader proponent for missionary work in the Gentile world, uh, his name was changed from uh, Saul to Paul. So um, the, fact, the fact that Thomas is called Didymus, uh, and other times he's just strictly called Didymus without the um, the parallel term of Didymus, it doesn't mean that you're dealing with two Thomases, you're dealing with one Thomas. Um, if you check the scriptures, you'll find that um, substantially most is told, much, most of what we know about Thomas is told in the book of John. Uh, he is also referred to in Matthew chapter 10, verse 3, and Luke chapter 6, verse 13 and 15, uh, where he is referred to as an apostle. But in John, uh, John chapter 11, verse 15 and 16, he's the one that says, let us go and die with him when Christ was going to see Lazarus and going to Jerusalem. And then in John chapter 14, verse 4 and 5, uh, he's the one that asked Christ a question 
uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And then Christ responded to saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, it was Thomas that asked that provocative question that got that answer from Christ. And then in John chapter 20, he's the one that was absent when Christ first appeared after his resurrection. And because he was absent, he said, unless I'm able to put my finger and my hand in his um, in his prints and also plunge it into his side, he would not believe. And then uh, later on in the same chapter, you find that our Lord appears a second time. And he says, Thomas, well, put your hand in my prints, put your hand in my side. And of course, that was the undoing of Thomas, where he fell down in awe and said, my Lord and my God. Substantially, that's all we know about Thomas. So to answer the question, there's only one Thomas in the New Testament, but he carries two names. He's called Thomas, and sometimes he's called Didymus, but he refers to the same person. Okay, thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. So I do trust that that listener who sent in that question last week is tuned in and you're satisfied with the question. Okay, as I said, we've been looking at Bible prophecy for some time now, and we are going to continue. And Pastor Murphy, we were looking at um, the question of rewards. And um, the question was asked, what about rewards? Does the Bible speak to this issue? Yeah, and I think we responded. We started um, pointing out to the audience that there are several references in the Scripture uh, to the fact that one day God is going to reward the believer. Um, we didn't give you an exhaustive list, but we did mention uh, Luke six thirty-five, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8 and 14, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 and 36, Hebrews eleven six, Hebrews 11, 24 and 26, as well as some other references we find in the Gospel of Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 10. Even that list is not exhausted. The same way that there are going to be degrees of punishment for the evil, the one that is not saved, there are also going to be different degrees of rewards uh, for uh, the believer. And uh, at the judgment seat of Christ, rewards are either going to be forfeited or they are going to be presented depending on the, the deeds and the accomplishments of believers. Um, let us understand that the judgment seat of Christ, uh, which has to do exclusively with the believer, the question is not one of destiny that's already decided. It's a question of reward. Are we going to be rewarded or are we going to forfeit our rewards? <clears throat> and when you look in the New Testament, um, you find that there are several crowns that are spoken about in the Bible uh, which are going to be part of this reward service. Let me just mention uh, five of these uh, very hurriedly. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse 24 and 27. I don't know if you can read that for me. 1 sure. Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 and 20 to 27. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. 
the Apostle Paul talks about the incorruptible crown. And this is a reward that is given to a person who exercises self-discipline, self-control, especially gaining the mastery over his physical appetites and avoiding uh, moral shipwreck. Uh, Paul talks about keeping his body under. He was aware that uh, the body is man's, one of man's greatest enemies, and unless that is restrained and controlled and tempered, uh, it could lead astray. That's why Paul was talking about being put on the shelf. Cast away doesn't mean that he's cast away from God's presence, but the word there has the idea of being put on the shelf, where Paul is no longer used of God because he's allowed the flesh to gain the mastery, and of course he becomes disqualified uh, because he has violated the qualifications that would be required of him as an apostle. Uh, there's also not only the incorruptible crown, but it's also in Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, there is the crown of righteousness. Uh, could you read that for me, please? Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. eight yeah. The Bible said, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. There it is. Paul talks about the crown of righteousness that uh, will be given to him, but also he mentions very clearly, it be given to others who are eagerly looking for the Lord's return and live righteously in view of that expectation. Uh, so, uh, again, that's the second reward that can be given to a believer. The question would be, are you looking for the Lord's return, and are you living a righteous life in view of that expectation? Uh, if that is true of you, uh, I can guarantee you that that is one of the rewards that would be given to you as a believer. And then uh, James uh, James one twelve and also Revelations 2.10, there's also a reference to another crown in that passage. James chapter 1, verse 12. Verse 12. The Bible said, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Again, and um, you, you, you probably can also find it in, similarly in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. But in each case, this has to do with the crown that is given to the believer who faithfully endures and perseveres under the trials and tests of life. And um, not everybody handles the tests of life uh, as they should, but this particular crown is given to the person who endures those testings and those trials and come to victoriously, and God promises you a crown of life. That should encourage those of you who are struggling with different trials and tests and who feel it's just overbearing. Just endure the tests, uh, knowing that God has a purpose in it, and um, he will give you the strength. If he doesn't remove the obstacle, he'll give you the grace to be able to handle the obstacle, as Paul discovered in Corinthians chapter 12, where God said, my grace is sufficient. So you've got uh, the incorruptible crown, you've got the crown of righteousness, you've got the crown of life. And then if you look at First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, there's another reward that is mentioned. It's called the crown of rejoicing. First Thessalonians 2, 19. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, the Bible said, For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? This is, uh, Paul is talking about the reward of the soul winner, the person who leads others to Christ. Uh, that person is going to be given the crown of rejoicing, 
Uh, so it is given to those who pursue the souls of men, or win men to Christ, and disciple them. And that's another crown that is given. So are you a soul winner? Are you trying to reach out to people, trying to bring them to conversion? And there is a reward for those who win uh, souls to Christ. It's called the crown of life. And then First Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 4, there's one other final reward that is mentioned in Scripture. It's called a crown. It's called a crown of glory. And uh, Brother Erskine, can you read that? First Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also of a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Again, this is a particular crown that is specially designated for pastors and, and leaders uh, who shepherd the flock um, and perform the job of leading God's people lovingly and having oversight of God's people and leading them in the direction of, of God's word. So a pastor and uh, a person who is actually in the leadership role, that's a crown, that uh, a reward that would be given to those who perform some function in the church in terms of leading people and leading the ministry. So there, those are five of the main uh, rewards that are mentioned, but be assured that there are others that are not, not, not given in Scripture because the Bible doesn't give an exhaustive treatment of everything. Um, the key thing here is that it's required of a story that a man be found faithful. And God is going to reward faithfulness. Uh, so just keep doing what God has called you to do. And you may not be recognized here. You may not get your accolades here and your praises here. You might not get um, um, anybody lifting you up and, and calling your name and um, bragging about you, etc. And uh, just be faithful in what God has called you to do. And you can be guaranteed that the day is coming when he's going to reward uh, you as a believer. So, Pastor Murphy, you would say that these are incentives for us as Christians today to be faithful in our service to the Lord, and so we can look forward to receive these rewards. I think I would agree with you that uh, rewards are an incentive. Uh, I, I think it's a, it's a natural part of life. Um, I do not know of a child who doesn't want an incentive, mm. uh, who doesn't look forward to a reward. I do not know an athlete who isn't looking forward to an incentive. I don't even know anybody who's actually um, working anywhere that is not looking forward to some kind of reward, sometimes a monetary reward, sometimes it's some kind of a honorarium that is given, sometimes some kind of a title, sometimes some kind of a gift. Uh, but I think we're all motivated by the fact that we all uh, feel that it is part of life that uh, we be rewarded for our efforts. And I think God is aware of our nature, and He's cognizant of that, and therefore He has put these things in place to incentivize believers uh, to pursue uh, doing his will, accomplishing his, his purpose, and fulfilling his will. And he uh, puts the icing on the cake when he promises them it's not going to be in vain. Uh, one day God is going to reward you. Just be faithful in what God has called you to do, and uh, he guarantees a reward. You know, I'm thinking of a verse in Hebrews. I can't remember the exact text, but it said, God is not um, unfaithful to forget your work of love. 
labor of love. Yeah, I think that's in Hebrews chapter, I think that's Hebrews chapter 12, if I'm not mistaken. Or 13, I think it's in chapter 13. But uh, that's a, a interesting uh, verse that is applicable to our subject. Uh, he's not going to be unrighteous to forget our, our works and our labor and our sacrifice. God takes a note of these things, and he's going to give us a reward accordingly. So as a child of God, let us not get weary in well-doing. Let us be faithful, the right motives, and you can have that expectation to looking forward to reward from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That, that passage you just quoted is from Galatians, where it says, um, Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you should reap. Uh, if you faint not. And of course, he's using the analogy of uh, a farmer. And every farmer knows that um, he plants and he waits. And um, sometimes he gets weary in the process of planting and, and uh, fertilizing and pruning, etc., etc. But he is aware that under normal circumstances, if he endures, the reward is coming. So the work may be burdensome and wearisome initially. But ultimately, he's, he, he continues plotting away because he knows at the end there's some massive crop that he's going to reap, and uh, provided it's not a glut on the market, uh, he'll be able to market his product and the reward is coming. That analogy is used in respect to the believer because we can get weary, just like a farmer, in plotting away, serving the Lord, and sometimes doing it in a way that it, we, we remain incognito. Nobody's aware of what we're going through, uh, what we're trying to do. And sometimes even we are misunderstood uh, in the process, and that can lead uh, to feelings of discouragement and despondency. But he says, uh, uh, don't go weary. Uh, in due season you shall reap if you faint not. So don't give up. Just keep on keeping on. You're listening to Dot Street here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It's an interactive program, so if you'd like to be a part of the program, you'd like to... Ask Pastor Murphy a question, even not concerning the topic, but you'd like to feel a question to him, you feel free to do so. Or if you have a topic that you'd like us to discuss right here on that street, just send us that um, information and we'll be glad to um, tackle that topic for you. Or if you want to send us a WhatsApp, it's 268 or you could send us an email at crl.stute at gmail.com. So, Pastor Murphy, I don't know if you want to just summarize um, what you've been doing on Bible prophecy for the past few weeks. Well, let me just quickly run through what we've been teaching. Um, first of all, we've been talking about the the profile that God has given in Scripture in respect to the future. Uh, we, we pointed out that the next event on God's calendar uh, for planet Earth is the rapture. Uh, the rapture is a mystery. It's not revealed in the Old Testament, uh, just like the church is not spoken of in the Old Testament specifically. Um, there are analogies in the Old Testament in respect to the church, but in terms of the church today, uh, it was founded on Pentecost. Uh, that was also a mystery hidden from the ages prior to the advent of uh, the Holy Spirit that came on Pentecost. But we talked about the next event being the rapture. And we pointed out that we talked about the different types of uh, beliefs about the rapture. 
There's the pre-wrath rapture. There's the mid-tribulation rapture. Uh, there's a pre-tribulation rapture and there's post-trib rapture. Uh, these are all positions that people have in respect to when the rapture will occur. And uh, These people don't doubt that there's going to be a rapture. It's just the timing of it. Uh, my position is, uh, and most evangelical Christians within the, uh, the conservative circle, is that I'm a pre-tribulationist rapturist. I believe that the church will not go through the tribulation. I believe that God has not appointed the believer to wrath. I believe that the seven-year period that is spoken about in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 to 27, have to do with Israel. And I believe that um, if you're going to go through the first half of the tribulation, it means that the rapture is no longer imminent. That means that you have to look to the signing of the peace treaty before the covenant is broken. And that would mean that um, the eminency of the Lord's return, which the Bible emphasizes again and again, that we don't know the day, we don't know the hour, that totally destroys the eminency that is emphasized in Scripture. And I don't think anybody can read the New Testament without getting the feeling that the the believers in Paul's writings uh, indicated that the Lord could return at any moment, any time. So we're always told to watch and be ready. We don't know the time. But those that believe in the pre-wrath rapture or the mid-trib rapture or the post-trib rapture have done away with the whole biblical doctrine of imminency. It means that we will know exactly when the rapture would occur if we're going to be doing the first half of the tribulation. So that's why I believe uh, substantially that... um, And then the other thing, of course, is that we all biblical analogies in the Old Testament must have a New Testament uh, illustration of that. And that is a, that's where you get the, the, the rapture of Enoch translated before the flood, before the wrath of God was poured out, uh, Enoch was raptured. And I believe that's exactly what's going to happen as well. So the rapture is next. And then after the rapture, we have the seven-year tribulation period where God is dealing with planet Earth and chastening the Jews, putting them in the crucible of affliction to bring Israel back to faith and repentance. But at the same time, he's judging planet Earth because this Earth has had 2,000 years to repentance, and it's becoming more vulgar, more evil, more immoral, and becoming more emboldened in the pursuit of perversion. And I think it is well due to God to chasten, and that's going to happen during the tribulation period. The Bible says it will be a time that has never been on planet Earth, nor ever will be again. By the time God is finished with humankind, two-thirds of mankind is destroyed. One-third is left. It is going to be that severe. So there's going to be the tribulation period. And then after the tribulation period, our Lord returns in glory with his people, his saints. And uh, he is going to uh, judge the nations out of the tribulation. And then we're going into what is called the millennial kingdom, which will last for a thousand years. This will be the fulfillment of all the prophecies made to Israel about the land. Christ will rule from Jerusalem. Jerusalem become the center. That would be where his headquarters were in terms of his, his governance is concerned. And there are a lot of prophetic writings in the book of Isaiah and um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel that talks about this period of time, a thousand-year rule of Christ, where he will sit on the throne of David and rule uh, uh, over the nations. Then after the, the tribulation, after the, the uh, millennial kingdom, we are told that Satan, who is bound at the beginning of the, tri- of the millennial kingdom, is let loose for a period of time. And even after going through a thousand years of the millennial of Christ, man's heart is still stubborn. Man's heart is still evil, and the devil is able to deceive them. There's a final rebellion called the Battle of Gog and Magog. And that is finally resolved. Christ uh, pours out his wrath, and then the kingdom... Uh, goes into what is called the eternal state 
of the, the kingdom of God. And uh, so we now enter what is called the new heaven and the new earth. That substantially is the uh, the panoramic survey of Bible prophecy in respect to what is going to happen in the end time. I should mention one other thing that I didn't deal with in great detail, and that is when the church is raptured. Uh, during that period when we're going on the tribulation period, there's a judgment seat of Christ where the believer is going to be judged before God, not to determine destiny. Let's be very, very clear about that. A man that puts his faith and trust in Christ and have saving faith and have justifying faith, that man is eternally secure before God. He is going to be with God uh, forever. But uh, the matter of rewards have to be settled, and that's where at the judgment seat of Christ, uh, rewards will be settled. And Paul says we judge for our deeds, for our works, and for our motives, why we did what we did, and what was the rationale. The quality of our work, not just the quantity of it, uh, would become the basis. Uh, that occurs during the rapture period and the tribulation period. And then we enter the eternal state that we mentioned, and we gave you a description of what the Bible tells us about heaven. Uh, New Jerusalem is coming down. It's 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high, and 1,500 miles um, long. And um, the cubic capacity of that I mentioned can hold over 90 million people, uh, if you do the statistics in that regard. So heaven is supposed to be a very large place. God is never stingy in regards to his people. Uh, uh, God is a great big God with great big thoughts. And humankind would discover that uh, just like Noah's ark was big enough to include so many much more, only eight got saved, uh, many will discover that heaven was designed not just for few, but a multitude that no man could number. If you're not saved and you don't know Christ as Savior, uh, you need to get your life in order and uh, uh, put your faith and trust in Christ as Savior. Thank you so much, Pastor Murphy, for that summary of Bible prophecy that we've been looking at here on that truth. And just remember, if there's something still you have some doubt about and you want to be cleared up, you feel free to call us here at the Lighthouse at 4627420 or you could send us a WhatsApp at 7814540 and Pastor Murphy will be glad yeah. to... Nate, uh, well, let me just inject one thing. We didn't cover Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, which has to do with the northern invasion of Israel and our allies, uh, which is going to be constituted of uh, Turkey, Iraq, uh, Turkey, um, Iran. Iran, Turkey, Iran. Uh, it's going to include Sudan. It's also going to include uh, Russia. We haven't covered that yet. That has to take place. And it will only take place when Israel is in safety. Uh, read it very carefully. That event has never occurred, uh, but is yet to take place. And we haven't covered that. So we've covered prophecy only in a panoramic way. We haven't done but treated it exhaustively. There's so much more to Bible prophecy than this. And I would encourage those of you uh, who have a taste for biblical prophecy uh, to... Uh, by one or two, the, the book by Pentecost, Things to Come, uh, has become the standard work on, on Bible prophecy. Uh, you might want, and then John Walvard, I would recommend, especially his book on Daniel, his book on Revelation. I think those are two classics that need to be bought by any person who's going to study Bible prophecy. There's a lot of clarity uh, there. And then Walvard has another one, and all the prophecies of the Bible uh, has been recently updated. Uh, it's available on the internet. You might want to Google uh, Walvard. John Walbert, and you might want to Google all the prophecies of the Bible if you're really interested in Bible prophecy. 
Thank you so much, Pastor Murphy. Well, we're going to um, move on with a new topic, a new subject, and that of Christian education. And so we're going to um, delve into Christian education at this time. Pastor Murphy, what is Christian education? When we talk about Christian education, uh, we're talking about a system of education that's built around a Christian philosophy of reality. Um, and what I mean by that is that uh, a Christian holds a distinctive uh, view of reality that is grounded in Scripture and the mighty works of God, of creation, also redemption. So when we talk Christian education, we talk something that is distinctively Christian, that looks at education from a biblical perspective, and that is governed by a complete overall uh, philosophy of uh, education. Every educational system has got some presuppositions behind every, whether it be a secular or whether it be a, um, a religious system of education. Behind every educational system, there's a philosophy. There's a there's certain presuppositions that people assume. And as far as Christian education is concerned, it has to do with we, uh, we adopt a Christian philosophy of life, and we look at reality through the uh, through the lens of Scripture. That means that uh, the Christian education covers all aspects of the student learning process. It covers the curriculum, uh, deciding what would be part of the curriculum. It covers the matter of building character in the student. Uh, we're not just here to educate the mind of a student. We're here to transform his life and also to give him good mor biblical morals and values. It also has to do with uh, addressing practical life and issues in practical life and how to live. And then the learning environment is vitally important when it comes to Christian education because the environment sets the tone uh, for the educational process. And then even the, uh, the matter of the methodologies that we'd use in teaching, even that is informed by our philosophy of education in respect to the biblical position. So <clears throat> we're just talking about an overall um, view of education that is rooted in the Christian philosophy of reality. That's what Christian education is all about. So would you recommend Christian education for everyone or just for Christians alone? Well, basically, uh, Christian education, uh, if you want to be um, truthful about it, it really is designed for Christians. But I... Uh, a part of the Christian education is to evangelize uh, the church. We'll come to that sh sometime in the process. Um, education is not just about um, educating the mind. Uh, we, we're talking about changing the life. And therefore, uh, the best environment for such a life-changing event that took place would be in the Christian environment within the Christian school. So I think you, it must have a, a dual purpose, that we're trying to shape character in people who are already Christians, on the other hand, we're trying to evangelize those that are not saved and that need some aspect of conversion because you really can't impart uh, biblical truth that is going to impact the life unless the understanding is enlightened through conversion and regeneration. So um, the Christian school is open to both Christian and non-Christian, and people need to understand that when they send a child to a Christian school, uh, if the Christian school is being honest with them, they need to understand that the, 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 the goal is ultimately to convert the child to faith and trust in Christ. We cannot be neutral when it comes to this whole matter. We've been given a mandate uh, to, to, to lead others to Christ. And the church, the Christian church, school, uh, Christian school must understand that it, uh, that as an institution falls under the mandate <coughs> of, of uh, 
<coughs> evangelism. So to answer your question, brother, I, I believe that uh, both should be allowed, but I think that the Christian school must keep its focus uh, that it's there to, to do both evangelism and edification. And, and of course, we've got the job of teaching uh, secular subjects to the kids, but from a Christian perspective. Okay. This question is, what are the core truths of Christian education? Well, the very substance and essence of Christian education um, has to do with the fact that God has revealed certain truths about himself, about his creation, and about mankind. And uh, it is these <coughs> core truths that really <coughs> guide the process of Christian education. Let me explain what I mean by that. For example, some of these fundamental core truths that are central to Christian education is that one of those is that we believe that God has created man in his own image. That is fundamental to Christian education. We believe that uh, man was created distinctly and uh, man was made in God's image and we believe that man was created directly by God and not by a process of evolution. So uh, in our education of young minds, uh, we, we bring that across because of the fundamental doctrine and the fundamental teaching. We don't teach evolution in the school. We would never teach evolution in the school, a Christian school, uh, from the point of view that it is scientific. We'll describe it maybe as a myth, pseudoscience, but it's not real authentic science because no truth that contradicts the Bible is truth, it's error. And evolution is one of those main errors. Uh, we believe that God, because man is made in the image of God and made a special creation of God, that he reflects God morally, intellectually, emotionally, relationally, uh, aesthetically, and creatively. And we try to uh, ensure that we uh, cater to him from those aspects. Now, the fact that man is made in the image of God and reflects God morally, intellectually, creatively, and uh, emotionally, and um, creative doesn't mean that we're saying that somehow man is a kind of a semi-deity. That's not what we're claiming. We're just saying that man has uh, God's image stamped on him. And because he has that image, he can think, he can feel, and uh, he can will, and he can relate relationally uh, to, to God. That is one of the core truths of Christian education that must always be born, that man is a special creation of God, is not by process of evolution, and that because he's a special creation of God, being God's image, he's a moral being, an intellectual being, an emotional being, a relational being, an aesthetic being, a creative being, and we try to cater to those, those particular aspects. The second uh, vital core truth about Christian education that governs uh, its teaching and governs its philosophy is that man is a fallen creature. Even though he's made in the image of God, that image is marred, and uh, man has a, a moral deficiency. So we, uh, in our education uh, within the Christian school, we are keenly aware that man has a sinful nature and that he's fallen. And because of that, um, man's is under the dominion of sin, and he is essentially born uh, with an evil nature. And that evil nature has to be curbed. And that's why the Christian school has rules and regulations and exercise discipline. Uh, we believe that his sinful nature needs to be curbed. Um, so while we are in, uh, trying to inform his mind 
and uh, we're still at the same time trying to curtail the expression of the evil that he's born with. So man is not born neutral. He's not born with a, as uh, some people believe, with a, a sheet that is white and it's not tarnished. For in time a man is born, he's born with a sinful nature, and that he is inherited from from Adam. Now that is unique to the Christian faith, by the way. Uh, uh, not even uh, religions like the Muslims believe that man is born with a sinful nature. It means that man is born good, but the, the society corrupts him, the environment corrupts him. So because we believe this, uh, we put rules in place, we t- put, we exercise discipline, and we try to curb the natural bent, which is away uh, from that which is good and towards that which is evil. A third important core truth about um, Christian education is that we believe that God has provided a way to restore the image that has fallen in man and that God has provided that way through Jesus Christ and that this Christ died uh, for man vicariously and he makes provision for man to be redeemed uh, through the exercise of faith and we believe that it's the responsibility of the uh, Christian educational system to point fallen man to the Redeemer who can salvage his life and restore the image that God intended originally. So the, the, the Christian school cannot help but be evangelistic. Uh, the teachers uh, must understand that they have a role in trying to influence the child in the direction of Christ. If you have a Christian school and you're only giving them a secular subject and educating them in secular subjects, we have not really accomplished what Christian education is all about. Our ultimate goal, ultimately, is to um, is to lead people to Christ. Someone, uh, I forgot who it was, that made the statement: that if you educate a man without morals, you've committed you you you've created a menace to society. Uh, I think that is substantially true. Uh, man needs God, and uh, the Christian school is there to to help shape and form these young lives in the direction of putting their faith and trust in Christ. And then there's one other core truth that's vitally important for the uh, Christian school, and that is um, the Christian view of the church. And what I mean by that is uh, the Christian believes that the Christian school uh, is there uh, to back up the church, as it were. And what I mean uh, uh, by that is that it is virtually an extension of the Christian home and the Christian church. Uh, for example, we would not hire somebody in our school um, who is not a Christian. And number two, uh, we would not hire somebody in our school that is a Christian that is not active in the church. Now, we may have people on our staff that are are not active in the church, but not because we know that, right? And because we believe that um, to be a Christian school, one of the best ways to do that is to back up the church by making sure that we employ teachers who are engaged in some aspect of church ministry. We believe the church was founded by Christ and that uh, the school uh, works in conjunction with the church in trying to reach men and women for Christ. Yeah, I Pastor think Murphy, the, Sorry, go ahead. I was going to um, say we have a WhatsApp question here from Southern California. It's not on um, Christian education, but... Um, Things more with Bible prophecy. Okay. Good night, my brothers. Do you believe Jesus will reveal himself to anyone in the last days? I, I'm not too sure what they mean by reveal anyone in the last days. Uh, I can tell you what I have been hearing, and I have no doubt, no reason to doubt it at this point in time. Uh, 
especially in the Muslim world, um, there are numerous occasions where, um, because of the situation where um, you cannot be uh, a Christian, you either would forfeit your property, jailed, imprisoned, even threatened and and uh, and, and killed. Um, the reports are substantial that people have had dreams of Christ. Christ has appeared. Um, and a lot of uh, Muslims have turned to faith and trust in Christ because this has happened. Unless there is some um, something that somebody that I don't trust, I, I take these things for uh, at face value. I don't have any reason to distrust them at no. Look, um, we in the Western world have become so much an open Bible that we forget there are parts of the world where they don't have an open Bible. And God has ways and means of manifesting himself that are not the ways and means that within the Western world. Where you have a problem with when somebody says that God has spoken to them or revealed something to them, but that, when it goes contrary to Scripture, we know that's not a, that is not of God. But God has ways of... But even in the New Testament, uh, when they had the Old Testament already written, Joseph was led by a dream uh, to go down into Egypt. I'm not saying that we're going to depend upon these things, but in parts of the world where you don't have access to the kind of uh, tools that we have, the kind of means that we have, I do not put God in a box that God cannot act outside what we in Westerners believe He must, uh, he must act within. I think a lot depends uh, sometimes on the location. For example, I'm not a person who thinks that tongues have any value uh, in Antigua or in, in Barbados or any of the Western countries that speak English. But I can f- foresee if a person was in a different part of the world and maybe trying to reach a tribe, uh, he didn't know the language, I I would not uh, discount the possibility that God given that person the ability uh, to speak that particular language. Um, even the Apostle Paul said, and speaking in tongues, to forbid not. But I don't see the value of it within the Western world. I don't see the value within the English-speaking church. Uh, when you understand what tongues is all about, uh, it was really declaring the works of God in the language of people who were there at Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost uh, um, it was a foreign language and people speaking in that language what had happened at Pentecost I don't know if that helps the, the person but I um, I would not discount what I'm hearing in terms of and the people that are saying these things by the way are reputable people uh, who talking and some of the even the Muslims who have come out of the uh, out of the Muslim movement and became Christians uh, have written books on this matter of how uh, the Lord appeared to them. Um, so I'm I'm right now I'm kind of neutral in terms of I'm accepting what I'm hearing without because nothing I've heard would contradict the principle that God can intervene miraculously and reveal Himself. Where I have a problem when somebody says God has spoken to them and what the Lord has said to them is contrary to Scripture. I know that cannot be true because God will not go contrary to Scripture. But I believe that God is sovereign and I believe that God can still do the miraculous. I think uh, we live in a world where we are so scientific, we no longer believe in a spirit world. I thought Christians, we live in a... Uh, I, I was. I remember I was talking to a, a missionary who was here in Antigua, and we had an, an experience where um, the first encounter we ever had dealing with the demonic spirit. Uh, and I remember asking him when he went back on uh, for law, was he able to share with his ch- the churches 
um, on this subject, and he could not share it because he would be shut down immediately because they don't believe that such things are possible any longer. And, and I think that's because the frame of mind that we're in, uh, we kind of box in God. So I, I would not, uh, I would say to the person who's listening, I would not say that it's, imp- I, I don't know if God will or he will not, that is God is sovereign if he does, but if he does reveal himself to someone, it will be in line with his word and not contrary to his word. That is the essence of what I believe at this point in time. But how, how does God reveal himself to mankind? Well, we know that God, if we look, go back in the Old Testament and, and trace, there are several ways that God revealed himself. He revealed himself, first of all, in creation. We know that. Uh, he also revealed himself in uh, prophecy, in dreams. He rose up seers and, and prophets. Uh, he revealed himself in miracles. But his supreme expression of his revelation is seen in his son when his son uh, became incarnate and God manifested himself through his son. And then, of course, uh, the scriptures uh, were also given to reveal re- reveal God. So there are several different ways that God has revealed himself. And uh, he still continues to reveal himself. Look, I, I, um, I was, must share this with the, um, with the audience as well. When I was about to go to uh, Bible school, um, I really didn't have the funds to go to Bible school. Um, be very honest with you. And a lady came from the States. I'll never forget this. First of all, she went to Jamaica. And when she got to Jamaica, it was in the 70s uh, when they had the Black Power Movement. And she was miserably mistreated in Jamaica. And she was trying to decide. She just went and got a map and uh, discovered there's a place called Barbados. She opted to come to Barbados. And when she came to Barbados, she ended up being in a church where I preached that night. And I'll tell you how I got to preach. The pastor was ill, and he asked me if I could preach. I said, I'll preach. Now, I didn't know the lady was in the audience, but before I was, uh, I preached, I was introduced to the person who wanted to go to Bible school. I didn't have the funds, whatever, the whole story, in the Caribbean problem. And I didn't know the lady was in the audience. And about two months later, she wrote the missionary and uh, told the missionary, I, 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 how can I help this guy? To make a long story short, she, she act, acted as my guarantor, uh, and that, that allowed me to get a visa to go to college. And when I went to college, I had to have at least one semester, uh, half a semester a fee. Once I got the, well, half a semester, I was allowed to go. And of course, I, I did plaques, I painted plaques, I, I, I bought a cow. <laughs> Believe it or not, a calf, I raised that, I, I sold it. I, I did all this to get to college. But here's my point. I will never forget this woman. Her name is Mrs. Bodner. Uh, she lives in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, without her, I don't think I would ever have gotten to Bible school. This was the person God used. But I would never forget her testimony. She told me that she got saved and was, uh, was led uh, to, to faith in Christ because she was searching and uh, troubled and she was doing her laundry, on putting up a sheet on the line, and she distinctly heard God call her voice, distinctly heard God call her voice, and spoke to her. And that was the turning point in her life that led her uh, to church and led her to put her faith and trust in Christ. Uh, you know, even Augustine, uh, the great Augustine, remember, uh, he heard, uh, take up and read, and that was influential in him coming to faith and trust in Christ. And if you read church history, uh, you will find that, um, t- take Spurgeon, for example, 
uh, was told deliberately by God to give a certain sum of money to um, um, the orphanage guy. Uh, what was his name again? Uh, the guy from Germany that had all these orphanages. Uh, I can't remember his name uh, spe- specifically, but um, he was told to give this money to this guy. And I mean, God spoke to him directly. So I think it is possible. And I think that sometimes we box God in and say that God has to work a certain way. I think that's a massive mistake we're making. God ordinarily speaks to His Word, and we know that His Word is a means whereby He speaks. But there are extraordinary cases where God intervenes, and I believe directly, and He can still do that today. Okay, Pastor, we have some text message from a faithful listener in St. Kitts. I have um, four questions here. The first one, good night, Pastor. Could you please tell me if the order of the judgment seat and the great white throne with reference to the rapture, what comes first? Please give the order. Well, I think we made it when I was given the summation of the profile of Bible prophecy a moment ago. I indicated to you that after the rapture, there is a judgment seat of Christ. The great white throne judgment occurs at the end of the millennial kingdom. You read it in, in um, um, Revelation chapter 20, and then you go into the eternal kingdom. But before that, you've got the judgment seat of Christ. Remember that believers are not going to be judged with the unbeliever. There's a judgment for the unbeliever and there's a judgment for the believer, and that occurs after the rapture of the church, the judgment seat of Christ. And this has nothing to do with destiny, as I pointed out. It has to do with rewards. Whether or not you should receive a reward or you'll forfeit a reward. Um, if, if, you, if you take the biblical term that is used, the bema seat, uh, as used in the, 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 the Greek culture, uh, it was people who would athletic competition and uh, at the end, of course, they had the beam seat where the person was actually rewarded as a result of the success of a race, etc., etc. That particular term is the term used for the judgment seat of Christ. It's called the beam seat of Christ. It's not a, a judgment seat like the great white throne judgment. Uh, has to do with destiny. This one has to do with reward. What's the other question? So um, the person was asking, so at the same time when the rapture is taking place on earth, that will be... Um, the Bema Sea taking place. Yeah, and the right. We're saying the rapture occurs and the Bema Sea is taking place while God is judging the tribulation period of time. And then you have the great white throne judgment. The, now, after, after the seven years, you've got the millennial kingdom. And then after the millennial kingdom, you've got the final rebellion. And then you've got the great white throne judgment. It's all there in Revelation chapter 20. And that will be all unsafe at the. Yes, at the, judgment, at the great white throne judgment, uh, it has to do with people who are not saved. Okay. So the next question is, what is meant by the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet? Well, what that really means is that, you know, you've got people who would, would if you, that's in Corinthians chapter 14, by the way. And uh, Paul is using an illustration there where <coughs> you, <coughs> you've got this massive confusion in Corinth where people are enamored with the least gift, which is the gift of tongues, and everybody talking in tongues created massive confusion. And the Apostle Paul <coughs> argument is, and by the way, when you talk to people, they say, well, I don't have any control. Uh, the Spirit just comes upon me, and I just, uh, I just speak in tongues. The problem with that is that Paul begins to say in that particular passage that uh, a person who is, if the Spirit controls um, a prophet, the prophet has the control 
of, of the Spirit. In other words, the idea that um, I, I can't help myself, therefore I can just, um, you know, I can just blurt out. I've been in churches, for example, where I can't even concentrate. Everybody's speaking in tongues. And I mean, that's a violation of the biblical principle that two or three in order, etc. So uh, the, the, the prophet, uh, the spirit of prophecy uh, is subject to the, in other words, the prophet has some measure of control in that respect. It has to do with the idea of uh, control. Yes, there's another one. What's the other one? Who are the sons of the prophet? In Second Kings four one, well, the Bible the, said um, the, the sons of the prophet. Uh-huh. If you if you read uh, that particular passage, it has to do. Remember, Samuel had started a, a prophetic school, and the sons of the prophet are those who are being trained by the prophets in the prophetic school of that uh, started by Samuel. So that's exactly the sons of the prophets, those who are being trained by the prophets to take, carry on the mantle of the uh, the prophetic uh, office. What's the other one? Please explain affections. Well, affections has to do with your desires. Um, um, you can got vile affections, you can have good affections. It's a, it's a neutral term. And if you check the, the, the Greek, I believe you'll find that it, it is sometimes translated lust and desires. So when we talk about affections, we are talking about our emotions. We are talking about our feelings. Basically, that's what affections has to do with. You can have good affections, you can have vile affections, you can have godly affections, you can have uh, vulgar affections. But that term has to do mainly with your 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 emotions, your sensitivities, and your um, your 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 feelings. Okay, we have an, dislike, uh-huh. we have another WhatsApp question here. This one is from Anguilla. Go ahead. I learn a lot from a well-known teacher of the Bible on his radio format, the late brother Campion, when I was living in the U.S. He knew the Bible front to back, and yet he got caught up in predicting the rapture at least twice. What do you think of someone like him? I I think that uh, I think it's a mistake. I I believe that people can people can get carried away. They they, they feel that they have a secret uh, in with God, and God reveals certain things to them. But yet they go clearly against the the principle of Scripture, which says that no man knows the hour, nor the time. Only the Father knows it. And it's a grave mistake that some people have made. I think sometimes it's, it has to do with spiritual pride as well. Um, uh, the other thing, and I, I, I know that you said that this is a man that knew the Bible from back, there's also sometimes a mercenary motive in it. And what I mean by that, there are people who come up with seven or nine reasons why the rapture will occur in, in, in a particular year, and they know they're going to sell. It's just going to sell like pancakes. So sometimes there's a mercenary motive behind coming to those kind of conclusions. But it's not wise uh, when a person does that because the Bible is very, very clear that nobody knows the day nor the hour and nobody can pray. Here in Antigua, I've had one encounter. I think I might have shared this on the radio uh, maybe two or three years ago where I met a young man who was um, he was listening apparently to some broadcast overseas, but he was convinced that the Lord was going to return. I think it was sometime in October and he gave me the, the date and everything. I'm serious about it. I'm telling you the gospel truth. It really happened. And I will never forget that while I was in his, he was a guy who was doing, um, he does uh, joinery. 
I've since seen him before, but I told him, uh, I can guarantee you that I'm going to come and visit you on that same day, and the Lord is not going to return because no man, he was so convinced. He, start, he, he started selling his, um, his tools. Uh, he had his tools up for sale, et cetera, et cetera. And when I was talking to him, I'll never forget, there was a clap of thunder that, that just occurred with the conversation. And he said, you see what I tell you? In other words, the, the, the thunder convinced, was convincing, trying to convince me that what he was speaking was authentic and real. It was a very unusual in- encounter, but I told him, I said, I can guarantee you the Lord would not return on that day that the guy told you that he's going to return. And uh, I saw him subsequently after the Lord did not return. didn't have an answer. People who go beyond Scripture will always end up in delusion and deception. We must stick with the Scripture, and we must not go beyond what God has revealed. When we do so, we discredit the gospel, we discredit the Christian faith, and we discredit our own integrity, uh, which hurts us in terms of our influence in dealing with other people. Yes, this man, Compton, that they're talking about, he was on family radio in the U.S., Uh and he had predicted the dates. He was using this passage in Peter. They said, a thousand years is as one day with the Lord, and one day is a thousand years. And I don't know how yeah. he got his arm. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I once was headed in that direction. Uh, here's, the, here's the argument. <laughs> no, here's the argument that is used, right? Uh, the, the, you were headed in that direction. At one time. At one time. <laughs> Let me explain what happened, though. You know, the numbers, biblical numerology, if you believe in biblical numerology, but we know that six is the number of man. Mm-hmm. We know seven is the number of completion. So the thinking was that 6,000 years is the rule of man, and then the final 1,000 years will be the rule of God. This is perfection. So the idea was that from Adam to Abraham was 2,000 years. From Abraham to Christ was 2,000 years. And now we were headed to the third 2,000 years, which would be 6,000 years. The thinking was that at the end of 6,000 years, the, the number seven, which has to do number, will become, and now the millennial kingdom, which is 1,000 years, will now bring in the eternal state, which will be completion. So it, it was based on the idea of, of uh, Bible numerology and the idea of the number six and the number seven. So uh, you can get caught up in this kind of a thing, uh, to be very honest with you. It sounds so logical, especially when you go to the book of Revelation and you see the number seven. It's, I mean, it's like 30 or 40 times in the book of Revelation, number seven, 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 seven. And if you take uh, even do the, the, uh, the praises, you find that seven things are praised. It's, it's, the number seven is, uh, is like a light flashing in the book of Revelation. So that would lead you to almost 7,000 years uh, would would be the millennial rule. So I think that he probably got caught up in the same kind of t- thinking along that line. But there's always a danger uh, of that uh, happening. But it, it, it can happen. Okay, thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. Okay, we are going to get back to um, Christian education. We have looked at what is Christian education and what are the core truths of Christian education. My next question is, Pastor Murphy, how is Christian education related to human development? Well, look, the the way we understand human development is that from the time a person is born, there are certain forces that are working to influence his development, uh, whether good or bad. Uh, The Bible summarizes these forces under three headings. The Bible says the world, which has to do with the environment, has to do with the social setting in which the person finds himself. 
And then the Bible talks about the flesh, which has to do with his own fallen, innate, sinful nature that um, has an effect upon his thinking and the direction in which his life is going. And then the Bible has a third dimension that influences human development, and that is the devil. And a lot of people don't believe in the devil, but the Bible makes it very clear that there are infernal forces working against a man from the time he's born, uh, trying to lead him uh, away from God. So Christians believe that from the time a child is born, uh, there are certain these forces, the, the world, which is his environment, and the social structure around him, uh, the flesh and the devil are trying to to uh, to to, to uh, influence him. The other thing is, um, Christian education also believes that there are inherent powers and tendencies that a person has that uh, these powers interact with, and um, you need we need to restrain and we need to somehow help in the development process. So what happens is that uh, Christians believe that are the faculties of a person, his personality uh, can be influenced, can be changed, can be refined, and um, can be developed. So what Christian education aims at is directing uh, the ongoing process of development towards certain biblical objectives. In other words, as a person develops, you've got these forces fighting against him. Uh, Christian education recognizes that in the development process, the Christian influence has to direct that process in the direction and the goals that God has set in His Word. So you're trying to work with His development. At the same time, you're trying to chart His development and and, uh, channel it in the direction of the clear goals that the Bible has set for humankind. Uh, so that's how Christian development and Christian education related. We're trying to direct the development process to attain those goals that God has set forth in His Word. Okay, you're listening to That Stute here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We are broadcasting at 1160 kilohertz AM, 92.3 megahertz FM, you could also listen to us online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Our program tonight is That's Choose. And if you'd like to go live on the air, the number to reach us is 268-462-7420. That's 268-462-7420. If you'd like to send us a text or WhatsApp, that number is 268-782-1454. Or you could send us an email at crl.stute at gmail.com. This evening, we are looking at the topic of Christian education. We have completed our study on Bible prophecy, so now we're dealing on the subject of Christian education. Pastor Murphy, what is the purpose of Christian education? What it is? The central purpose of Christian education is defined for us and set forth for us um, by the Scriptures itself. And basically what the whole purpose of, of Christian education is that in directing the development, the development process in human beings, is moving towards the the goal of creating a godly character who acts in a godly manner. Uh, to put it another way, 
And the goal of Christian education is really bringing a person into conformity with the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, the goal is Christ-likeness. That is always the goal of Christian education. I cannot overemphasize that we seem to have uh, put so much emphasis on the intellect, on the the academic subjects, and we can lose sight of what the ultimate purpose of Christian education is. I repeat, if you educate a person without morals and values, you are creating a menace to society. Uh, you must temper the the secular education, all these other subjects we teach, we must understand that the goal is to create a, a person who can take those skills and that knowledge and use it uh, for the glory of God and also use it for the best of society. And that's where morals and values has to come in. So that's the main, main uh, purpose of, of Christian education. It really is to create um, godly character, and um, have a person being motivated to act in a godly way in respect to his society and his fellow man. That's the overall arching goal of Christian education. So then you would say that Christian education is adding um, a spiritual value to um, the human development. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the key thing here, uh, I think you put it fairly well, uh, we need to differentiate between the secular and the public school education system and the Christian education system. We teach the same subject substantially, but we teach it from a different perspective. We teach it from a Christian perspective. Uh, for example, when we teach history, we teach history from the same textbook that is being used in the secular school is being used in the Christian school, but we take a different perspective in the sense that uh, all historical events, there's a sovereign God who controls historical events. So you have to bring God into the picture. When we discuss science, whether that be biology or chemistry, we got to bring God into the picture because man doesn't make scientific laws. Man discovers scientific laws, and it's God that designed planet Earth that, the way it is. When we deal with the social studies, etc., uh, uh, etc., et we bring into idea the biblical concept of humankind. When we deal with social sciences, uh, we, we get the people to understand that, uh, for example, take, take home and family life. Man did not invent marriage. God invented marriage. That needs to be taught. And marriage is not a male and a male and a female and a female. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a heterosexual uh, arrangement. So while we're teaching the same subject uh, that will be taught in the public school or in the uh, secular school, we're teaching from a, a biblical perspective and a Christian perspective. And you rightfully uh, pointed out, uh, uh, Brother Erskine, that we are adding a spiritual dimension to the academic subjects that are being taught in the school. We try to excel in academic subjects. We want our kids to be the best students uh, in anywhere that they're being produced. But we do not sacrifice uh, the spiritual aspect for the sake of the academic. Uh, our main central purpose is really uh, to create character in people as opposed to, um, uh, to, um, to, to create intellectual excellence. And sometimes I think we make a mistake in Christian school that we don't know what we reward. We reward a child who's done maybe 15 subjects, but do we have a reward for a child who's displayed Christian character and Christian behavior and Christian conduct? I think that uh, we make a mistake when we elevate the academic above the spiritual, uh, etc. I think that there needs to be a balance there in terms of the Christian school. And I know that uh, your church um, operates a Christian school. You could... Um let all listeners know. 
Yeah, our Christian school is called Christian, Christian Academy. Uh, I think most people that send their kids there are fairly satisfied with the the performance. Uh, like everything else, there's always room for improvement. We're always trying to improve not only the infrastructure, we're always uh, trying to improve the, the teaching, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we try to emphasize to teachers that uh, we would not hire a teacher, for example, that could not lead a child to Christ. Uh, I can guarantee you that when we're interviewing a teacher, we want to see what they're qualified academically. We want to make sure that they can teach. But one of the premier questions that I ask is, how would you lead a child to Christ if a child came to you and said, a teacher, how can I be a Christian? If we can't, if that teacher cannot explain the simple way of salvation, they'll never be hired. Because our purpose is not just to produce academic subjects. We're not just to produce people who can go to university, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Our purpose ultimately is the conversion of children. And people need to understand that uh, Christian education has a, a spiritual dimension that is not in the public school. And by the way, that's why we have discipline as well. Uh, in, in the Christian school. And that's why a lot of people prefer the Christian school because they know that within that environment there is the exercise of discipline. Uh, many times the public school uh, is, is, is traumatized, children who are trauma, traumatized in the public school because the, the discipline is, has broken down and there are things that are allowed that would never be allowed in the Christian school. And I think parents value that. I don't think I've met a parent yet who, don't, who does not value the, the spiritual environment and the discipline that our school offers uh, to the children. You're listening to That's Truth, and we are looking at Christian education. We have touched on what is Christian education, what are the the core truths of Christian education, and how Christian education is related to the human development, and the purpose of Christian education. Pastor Murphy, my next question to you is, who is responsible for Christian education? Well, when you look to the scriptures uh, and, and everything that we do as believers, we, we need to go to the authority of scriptures because that's the guide, that's the that's the uh, sublef by which we judge our decisions in, res- in, in regards to any matter, uh, whether it be education or otherwise. When you go to the scriptures, you'll find that education really is the responsibility of two entities. Uh, uh, it's very, very clear that the home is responsible for the child's education. You find that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. You find it in Proverbs chapter 26, 22, verse 6. Uh, and you find it also referenced in uh, 1 Timothy 1, 5 and three fifteen. That the premier institution that God established for the education of kids is the home. The second institution is the church. Um, the church has not only has an evangelistic um, job or task, it also has an uh, edificational task, uh, which is part of the matter of education. As a matter of fact, uh, it is so clear that this is why the scriptures recognize teaching as a gift uh, in the book of Ephesians and Corinthians and Romans. Uh, the fact that it recognizes that teaching is a gift assumes the necessity that teaching is an important part of the church. Now, the, so you've got the home who's primarily responsible, you've got the church. And this is where now the, the, the church and the home, 
now uh, in, invest the, that mandate and that authority to the Christian school so it becomes an extension of the mandate that's given to the home and given to the church. And that's where churches normally found uh, Christian schools to fulfill the biblical mandate that parents and the church is responsible for the education of its children. And uh, Christian schools are founded on the, found, on, the, on the conviction that they have a mandate to uh, educate uh, the people, um, Christians, in the truth of God's Word and in the truth of, of, of Scripture. So the point I'm making here is that the, uh, the essential institutions that are given the task of teaching is the home and the church. But of course, you've got other things that uh, the church can't, the school can't teach uh, uh, mathematics, and the home, of course, they don't have that capability, and that's where the Christian home and the Christian church uh, is now mandated uh, to fulfill that role by assisting the Christian home in the educational process. So the mandate for the Christian school really is an extension of the mandate given to the church and to the home, as far as uh, Christian education is concerned. And I would like to say this, um, the education of children, therefore, is the prerogative of both parents and the church, and by extension of the Christian school. The state has no authority to impose, um, whether it be a curriculum or regulation that jeopardizes the Christian prerogative in terms of uh, teaching education to uh, its people. And the church can work conjointly with the, the church uh, with the Christian school, but um, it must not in any way um, try to violate the biblical principles that govern the Christian school and its philosophy of ministry. Pastor Murphy, you mentioned that teaching is a gift. You no, know, it's a spiritual gift mentioned there in um, Ephesians chapter four. Mm-hmm. But I believe. When it comes to um, Christian education and their responsibility, most of our teachers are not um, gifted to teach. It's just like a job or a career yeah. they well, enter into. Well, I agree with you. I think that's the dilemma that I don't know. I can't speak in regard to other schools, but I think that's the dilemma the Christian school finds itself in. Let me explain why it is so to some extent. Part of the problem is that... Uh, Uh, A lot of Christians are not prepared to make the sacrifice to teach in a Christian school. Let me put it that way. Uh, Most Christian schools, except you're charging uh, a school fee that is exorbitant, uh, like uh, uh, a private government school or whatever it is, um, um, most Christian schools try to maintain, a. at least our philosophy of education is to keep education to the level of the average Antiguan. So our our thinking when it comes to Christian education is to keep the school fees as minimum as possible so that the Antiguan public would have access to Christian education. That's the philosophy that's guided Grace Christian Academy. That's why if you check our our, our rates uh, and comparison with um, others I would mention or whatever, you'll find that we are substantially lower than a lot of other Christian schools because that's the philosophy that guides it. The problem with that now, though, is to compensate the teacher. And this is where teachers need to understand that sacrifice is necessary. I, I tell our people that the, the church has to make a sacrifice for Christian education, the parent has to make a sacrifice for Christian education, and the teacher has to make a sacrifice for Christian education. And we haven't been able to um, ingrain that mindset 
because people today are going after the higher dollar. It's not about making any sacrifice. I mean, you guys at the work at the radio station, uh, I am, I'm, I'm going to hazard a guess that probably if you're working at a secular radio station, you're making far more than a Christian radio station. But you've had to make the sacrifice uh, in order to get the, the radio on the air, keep it on the air. People understand that. But I find that Christians today are more motivated uh, by the paycheck, the numbers, than they are about making sacrifice. And I find that that is what is happening in the Christian school. So that people in your ministry, uh, when you have a Christian school, they would leave your church and go and and, uh, take up a secular job or take up a job teaching a government school, would not go to a Christian school because they make more money that way. And uh, I, I, I cannot emphasize that we cannot offer the Lord that which costs us nothing. And I think that we need to understand that sacrifice is part and, and of the Christian ministry. And it's because of that reason people come into the job and they don't have the gift, whatever it is, and they just see it in terms of drawing a paycheck. That's the dilemma that a lot of ministries find itself in, 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 in also in connection uh, with the school. So it's a, it's a problem. The other thing is that because you're not getting people out of your own church who have your philosophy of ministry coming in, they're coming from different groups, different churches, they're bringing a different philosophy and different thinking. That also affects the capacity to ingrain your philosophy of ministry into the, the, the teachers, etc. And that in itself is a, is a barrier. But I, I do agree with you that there are people in the teaching profession, in the Christian school as well, uh, that's not their calling, and it's just to draw a paycheck. Uh, it is sad that that's the case, but um, it's a reality. You know, I'm thinking if the Christians in our school who are gifted with that gift and seeing teaching as a, a ministry, and so if they would go probably you would find that they are more motivated to um, teach the Christian education than a person who just save and want a job. I think the key word you just used there is really, in my, in my, in my judgment, uh, a very profound word, the word ministry, seeing it as a ministry, right? Uh, I think that's the way that people need to see teaching. If you're called to teach, uh, you've got to see it far beyond a paycheck. You've got to see it in terms of influencing the lives of these young kids and trying to move them in the direction of, of, of uh, the, the goals that Scripture sets before them so that you are willing to make a sacrifice for the welfare, the eternal welfare of the children. I think that is a given. And uh, if we had more of those type of, that type of thinking, uh, it would definitely have a transforming effect within the school and within the lives of kids, so I, I I do agree with that statement, and I think it's a very profound statement. Ministry is a concept that is needed uh, to be taken on by uh, by believers who are involved in uh, the school system. Okay, you're listening to that, Stuart. If you have a question for Pastor Murphy, please call us at two six eight four six two seven four two zero. That number will take you live on the air, or you could send us a WhatsApp. Or text at 268-782-1454. We are looking at Christian education. What is Christian education and the core truths of Christian education and the purpose of Christian education? Pastor Murphy, 
who should form the curriculum of Christian education? Well, the 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 content of Christian education basically um, has to do, I would say, substantially. The first thing I would say about it is that the, the Christian curriculum revolves around truth. Okay, I think that is is crucial. Uh, everything that we do in the Christian school in the Christian education system, it is premised on the fact that all truth is from God. Uh, we know that He is a God of truth. We know that Jesus Christ is the Lord of truth. We know that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And we all know that God's Word is the Word of truth. So the, the, the key thing that uh, for Christian education in terms of the content is that we've got to understand that we're dealing in the realm of truth. And uh, we believe that the single source of that truth is God's Word. Consequently, uh, the Bible is the center of the Christian school curriculum. I cannot emphasize that too much. Uh, the Bible uh, determines the principles um, where Christians interpret the facts of, of, of other subjects that, that, that they're teaching. Uh, the Bible is also there uh, to give a perspective when you're discussing on issues that are relevant to life, that when you interact with the kids. So the important thing is to understand that the Bible is central um, to the Christian school. It's everything revolves around the Scripture. Everything is interpreted from the the, the biblical perspective of, of Scripture, and even the selection of uh, the methodology that we would use is also in, in some way controlled by the principles of Scripture. So to, the the curriculum is it's about truth. And uh, that truth is embodied in the scriptures, which govern the overall uh, methodology, the overall philosophy, the overall um, curriculum of this Christian school. That is central. Now, in addition to understanding that truth is the the, the main thing, and that this truth is embodied in scripture, which is the 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 the, uh, the means of uh, guiding the curriculum. Christian uh, education is also involved in the humanities. And the reason why we get involved in the humanities, of course, is because man is created, it's highest creation of God, and God has given man a rational mind. And uh, because of that fact that man is a rational creature, it means that Christian education is not just about the Bible. It means that we must be concerned about language because God created language. Uh, it means that we must be concerned about literature because God has gifted people the, the, the gift of language and who can express themselves in literature. It means that we must be concerned about the artistic um, expression that people have uh, in terms of their achievement. We must also be concerned about the humanity in terms of history. That's why we teach history. History is a record of, of man's uh, past and man's present and man's future, basically. And that's why we teach history. And we also must be concerned about the social sciences because man is a social being and God created man as a social being. So it's not just teaching Bible. The Christian school teaches the humanities as well. The, the literature teaches the, 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 the language, etc., etc., art, history, etc. But then also we teach the natural sciences. And the natural sciences we teach because uh, God is the creator of all of this that we have. The great complexity and beauty and order and the greatness of what we see around us uh, is all a product of God's hand. I repeat, man does not make 
scientific laws. Man discovers scientific laws. God is the one that created these laws. And consequently, by extension, uh, uh, the Christian school also involved in the teaching of physics, uh, biology, um, um, chemistry, uh, mathematics, etc., etc. So all the other subjects that are taught within the secular uh, school are also taught within the Christian school. There's no difference in terms of the material. The, the main difference is the angle from which those doctrines are. For example, take biology. In the Christian school, there's nothing wrong in making a reference to evolution, but never, not teaching it as a scientific fact. Teaching as a pseudo myth that the world has bought into that there has no biblical basis for it whatsoever, and it's completely unscientific. By the way, the evidence for creation is far excels the evidence for evolution, and there's several books that have been written on that. Uh, now today, people are now talking about intelligent design, especially because when they recognize the complexity of just the DNA molecule and the the information that's programmed into that molecule, they recognize it could not just happen by chance. And so that they've got to move away from the evolutionary teaching that uh, it just had a random selection, didn't this order and design. So to answer the question, the central focus on Christian education in terms of its curriculum is about truth. That truth is embodied in Scripture, which is the the governing umbrella under which all other um, sciences, all other disciplines are taught. Uh, but uh, along with that, we delve into the humanities and the sciences, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because man, and also the social sciences, etc., because man is made by God. Uh, man is a rational creature. Man is a social being. But also uh, the fact that God is the designer of all that is, we're able to teach these subjects as well within the Christian school curriculum. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question. From Anguilla, it's a comment also. Said, if a teacher publicly label their teaching in school as a ministry, it's quite possible that their job could be in jeopardy. Don't, don't you think? Well, listen, think so? I, I'm aware that within the public school, if you're working for government, uh, government is supposed to. Um, their idea is that um, that the it's a secular school. You're not supposed to bring in uh, religion and values, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that doesn't stop you from adopting an attitude of ministry. Uh, I'm not suggesting to you to go there and placard it on the on your blackboard, uh, teaching it a ministry when you know you're going to get fired because I don't want to be responsible for having to maintain your family. But at the same time, I think it is more a matter of an attitude uh, in terms of your performance. I, I don't have to broadcast that I see teaching as a ministry, but in my mindset, I am seeing it as not only teaching my math or teaching uh, language or teaching art, I'm seeing it as a means of reaching the children and trying to influence them in the direction of trusting Christ. I think it is uh, is right and proper to do that. And uh, so I'm not saying that uh, I recognize that you possibly could get fired. I don't know. I don't know what it is in Anguilla. I know that uh, maybe in the States or maybe in England, if that were the case, you probably could get fired. But I do feel that you can still uh, have that mindset of ministering uh, without broadcasting it unless you're prepared to make the sacrifice of uh, losing your job. And sometimes people make that sacrifice, and rather than remain in the public school system, you go and join a Christian school where you have free access and you no longer feel that you're trammeled 
or you're controlled and you can't speak your mind and you can't um, you know display exactly what your your whole purpose is in teaching that might be an option as well but I do feel that the, whether you want to broadcast it or not that should be your attitude that it's a ministry not just a paycheck you're ministering to the children and your whole goal is to move in the direction of putting their faith and trust in Christ transforming them to the image of Christ and building Christian character and Christian values in those people uh, I might say this um, uh, Brother Erskine I, 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 part of the reason why we start I, I thought we'd go in this direction for a while because I want to deal with the whole matter of the value clarification uh, process that you find in, in schools today uh, because I'm concerned that we need to re-establish values within the school system whether that be just the Christian or the secular as well you cannot teach education without teaching morality uh, if you're just going to educate the head and not educate the heart, I think you're going to create a deficient graduate. And I think it's important for us to understand that uh, this this teaching of teaching um, value clarification is, is not biblical, it's not solid, it's not sound. As a matter of fact, uh, it's a system that virtually says that there are no moral absolutes and that every person is now uh, have a right to make their own choice. It ends up being where it comes to my own personal conviction as opposed to what, if there are any transcendent truths that are binding on everybody else. And I think that the mistake that is made uh, and should not be made in the Christian school is that we need to establish that their values and their morals that are transcendent and that are binding on everybody. We cannot take the adopt the attitude that you find within the secular school about this matter of value clarification. Thank you so much, Pastor Murphy. We have now come to the end of, of our programming for tonight. And I want to thank you very much for being a part of the program. Those of you who have sent in your text message, we do appreciate you doing so, or your WhatsApp. I do trust that you have learned from our program tonight. So good night, and may God bless you. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.